So as we enter this chapter 7, verse 8, we're going to see that God not only is going to bring Egypt to their knees, but He's going to show the Israelites how powerful and how great He is. And that's what this is all about. He's always demonstrating His great glory, isn't He? And to go all the way with ten plagues is quite remarkable that He would do that uh, to these people. You would think one or two would have been enough. You would have thought that Pharaoh would have at least by the second one say, okay, God, that is enough. Uh, whatever, you know, I, I give up. But he just did not give up. And he wanted Pharaoh to know without any doubt whatsoever that he was the true God. And at the same time, what it does, it shows how stubborn the human heart can be. Because Pharaoh is like us and that he is of mankind. He's not some other kind of creature. He is the same as us. He was born the same way that we were. We were born in sin. And so it's going to show, expose the sinfulness of man, his depraved heart. And this is how stubborn a man can be. To go all the way through ten plagues like it, I would say that is a representation of stubbornness. Now you've heard of Missouri mules being stubborn. Well, this Pharaoh should have it named after him. But we all could be that same way if God let us be. Uh, We'll observe over the uh, period of time that uh, as it takes to cover these plagues. We're not going to do them all today. We're going to do three of them, the first, first third of them. His heart is going to get more and more, what? Hardened as it goes along. He already had a hard heart. That's, that's the thing because that's the nature of man, isn't it? God made his heart harder and Pharaoh himself even hardened his heart as we'll see. But God had designed His plan that way to show the freedom that He actually has. God's will is in perfect freedom. He is not bound to anything that we think or say. He can do whatever He wants. He doesn't have to go at our commands. Moses actually had a heart of unbelief. And how about Aaron? Did he have a heart of unbelief too? And we see that later as he builds an idol for the people, the calf. Moses, we've seen all along, it's very obvious how he didn't believe God uh, many times that he denied these things that God was telling him to do. But God granted him mercy and used him in the plan. To Pharaoh, he does not grant mercy, but... In his unbelief, he left him there. He did not give him mercy. And God hardened his heart. And I know that sounds very difficult to the human mind. But that is just something that we have to bring out because it is here. We can't cover it up or make an excuse for God. Oh, he didn't really mean that. Because he did. And if we look at other texts, just to make sure that we're not reading it wrong, if we were to look in Romans 9, it gives us a a very detailed analysis of what happened here in our Exodus section. And we can't miss it because over and over again it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we will see also that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But where did it start from? It started with his own hard heart, but God then removed his 
reign upon them in the sense that He let Him be the way that He wanted to be. And when that happens, a man will always go wrong. Um, when God hardens the heart here, it shows that He has absolute power and control over people. He has absolute power over nature. Because in the signs we see uh, the, the miracles that come from uh, just what would be natural. It's now supernatural in the things that He's going to do. But the more sin abounds, as far as Pharaoh's hardened heart, the more God's grace superabounds as He puts a grace and mercy on a people who did not deserve it, who were in bondage, who were in slavery, and He delivers them out. That's an incredible kind of God. And eventually it's going to get to a point where our minds, which are finite, cannot totally comprehend that. It's too deep for us. Romans 9 says that God has vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy to show the riches of His mercy. So He is a God of wrath, is He not? He, he shows that. And that has to be seen. He's a, he's a just God. He's also a God of mercy. And that's what we see as He delivers the Israelites out of here. What a mystery it eventually comes to. It's too high. It's too deep for us to grasp. What kind of love is this? So as we think about this very difficult topic, probably one of the most difficult topics that one can ever attempt to even try to describe in the Scripture, God's freedom is to do whatever He wants to man, whatsoever He desires, and it's always good because He's a good God. It should humble us and make us realize that we're not ever to make God in such a comfortable mold that everything is just rosy and everything goes our way. To to put God in that level is to limit Him for who He is. To say that He can't harden a heart is to say, hey, I don't have a God like that. Well, then what God do you have? That's not the biblical God. This God is hes a lion that we cannot tame. Don't attempt to tame God and try to make excuses for His nature because it is something to behold. It's something to glorify. It's something to stand back in awe and say, Wow. So at this time, we also... As far as the human side, we do have to cover that in a sense and recognize that man is still responsible for what he does. We have to say that. For his own actions, Pharaoh is responsible for for what he did and the consequences that will follow. As a result of what he does, there will be grave consequences. And so there we have that great mystery of God. It is incredible. The sovereignty of God is involved here as we deal with this. So, chapter 7, verse 8. And the first 13 verses, or uh, well, 8 through 13, is a section where we get a preview of the plagues. The plagues don't start, but it's going to preview them. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying... When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, 
show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod, cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Ha! Ah, the great miraculous rod. We have a preview that opens up the whole proceedings of this. Introduces this. It establishes a pattern for the plagues that are going to be coming. Usually what you have is a sign from the Lord, which you get there. Then a duplication from the magicians of the Egyptians. And then after that, you get Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That's kind of an outline that goes on in each of the plagues as we'll examine this. This passage here, I think, summarizes the battle, the war between Yahweh, the true God, and Pharaoh, the God of the earth. He's considered to be a God too. No contest. But at first it looks like there is a contest, at least Pharaoh thinks that, and, and some of the people do. I'm sure Moses is wondering what's going on too, as it's duplicated. But God gives instructions. He says, okay, Moses, Aaron, do this. Go up to Pharaoh again. I know you've been there before. What happened when he went there? Well, Pharaoh pretty well laughed him out of there. Uh, no way he was going to listen to what they said. He wasn't going to let the people go. If we look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 3, we see some instructions that we're very familiar. Moses is being instructed by God, and uh, God said, well, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. That's the first time that he had it. That's where God introduced him to this rod that's going to become a serpent. And he's going to use that. Well, here it is. Now it works. God had mentioned this, and uh, it uh, comes to pass. The rod turns into a snake. And it's interesting that there would be a snake there because snakes represent Egyptian power. And if many times you've seen in movies, Cleopatra or some of the other Egyptian movies, you have a headdress on the Pharaoh. And on that headdress, it actually looks like a, a cobra. And you'll know the cobra and the tricks they would do with that. So that's not too far-fetched. Uh, this staff turns into a snake. And I believe it's a direct challenge to Pharaoh's power. Now, I, I believe, without having to read into it too much, that every time uh, that there is a sign to be done, it attacks one of the Egyptian gods. I think it's incredible as you see this, because they had different gods. And, um, of course, um, they think that they rule. But we'll, we'll see that God is going to challenge it. And that's what he's doing. He's challenging the Pharaoh and his power and, and the Egyptians' power. So they're to confront Pharaoh with God's power. The first time didn't go well. This time it is going to go well. What happens? Pharaoh intends to show his great force. He's going to show his power, gets the magicians there. He needs the magicians to do this trick. 
He doesn't do it, but he has these men around him. And whether this miracle here that they do, if is it really a miracle? We can't say for sure. I've read many commentaries, and most of them turn out to say that it's probably it could be deception, it could be trickery, or it could be supernatural in itself, coming from the demonic side. Very, very possible that that's what it is. It could be a combination of those. A little bit trickier with this. We don't know for sure, but one thing we know, that the enemy, Satan, loves to counterfeit. That's what he does best. He cannot create, but he can counterfeit God. Since it was not from God, these signs that they're doing, we know that it's coming from other, some other source. So they didn't solve one thing, though. Even though their snakes, or their, their rods like turn into to snakes, they didn't solve the deal. What happens? Well, Aaron has his rod or that snake swallow up, or what you have, you have a swallowing up of the staff of Aaron, and Satan can empower his people to make it really look like uh, there is power, and sometimes it can be very deceiving, and it could be something like that. Um, but it says here, they didn't like manner with their enchantments. It says in verse 11. Every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Okay, they couldn't swallow up Aaron's, but his took their, uh, took the uh, victory there. And so anyway, there was some kind of thing going on that was incredible. We know where one came from. Look in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine and ten. Speaking of the lawless one, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Uh, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Anyway, it, it looks like as they get permission to do certain powers, certain signs, certain lying wonders, the enemy has, and it's it's always like a, a counterfeit. Um, there, it's mentioned there that our whole idea is that where is this coming from? This that they're able to do what they're doing. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Verse 13, speaking about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Make it look like they're apostles. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Here they were... Um, like transforming this whatever was going on if this is actually Satan's work involved here or the next one or even uh, uh, those those signs that are brought forth um, the angel of light and he is a master of deception and so we know the enemy can, can do things like that be careful so that even the left if possible could be deceived that's coming up there pretty close Look in 2 Timothy 3.8. Now this lends kind of support to our Exodus passage. This relates to just kind of where we're at. 2 
chapter 7 and 8. 2 Timothy 3, 8 says, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. There it is in New Testament time that Paul's talking about that men come along uh, acting as they are for real, trying to give uh, answers to things that really is not the truth of God. They're corrupt in their minds. And he used the example of Janus and Jambres that went back to the time of Exodus, Moses. And they did their magical arts on that. They were right out of the Old Testament. They opposed him. Jewish tradition says that later on that they followed the Jews and they, they acted like they became believers, like proselytes. And uh, they were ones that kind of started the worship of the golden calf or had it kind of helped going. That's just some Jewish uh, writings. We don't know about that. Anyway, many times we have to watch out for things that are deceptive, that look like it's true, but it's really not. Where's that coming from ultimately, right? As far as Pharaoh is concerned, this case is undisputed. His men were able to do that. Now we go to that pattern where after the miracles are done, then what happens? Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. He didn't listen to Moses and Aaron. His heart grew hard. This time it's a passive sense. His heart grew hard. You don't see the same phrase where it's said before that... God will harden his heart. Same chapter, back up to verse 3. And he says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So there is God doing it. In verse 13, it's put in the passive sense in that it just happened to Pharaoh. If we were to go back to um, chapter 5, chapter 4, I'm sorry. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see all that you do, all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I will do that. So we see initially it definitely starts with God and throughout we'll keep seeing that phrase but we'll also see where Pharaoh hardens his heart and it is hardened in a passive sense and where God does it. So it's, it's a culmination, combination of all of them. The lesson was not learned by Pharaoh. doesn't learn this lesson. It's confirmed by this, uh, by his own miracles that were coming up by the magicians. So the miracle by God there wasn't enough to convince him. Even though his got swallowed up, he, he said, uh, you know, he didn't pay attention to that. He was already decided to be in unbelief. That's the way it was going to be. This is a hard heart. And then we see what God does with it. What God does in Romans 9 and 17 and 18, we see a parallel that's happening. Now, God, in His control... He is the one who maps out the nations, it says in the book of Acts. He is the one who has the boundaries planned. He's controlling all of this when it's ultimately said and done. He is not surprised by anything. And at, at, at times he will bring up certain rulers of nations. He will raise them up of positions of prominence, which he did with Pharaoh. But he brought him up for his own purpose. 
It's not just by accident that Pharaoh becomes Pharaoh. God had this particular person in mind to put him up in that position and then to use these plagues. Look in Romans 9.17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that, what? My name may be declared in all the earth. That is the reason. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. That's about God. Are you learning a little bit about the nature of God as you see something so awesome? He raises him up to be used in this situation. And the next question say, well, how can, how can uh, anyone, how, why does he still find fault? And then God answers back, and then somebody says, well, who has resisted his will then if that be the case? And he says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why does he have made, like, made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, ten plagues even, in other situations, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Pharaoh is just an example. He's done that with people all throughout the whole plan of God. Incredible, I know it is, but that's the passage. He did accomplish, Pharaoh did accomplish some of his own purposes. His will is involved in there too. It's incredible how it works. But in reality, what is he really there for? To serve who? God's purpose. If you look in Romans 13, we have a a chapter dealing with the government. And they are ministers of God. They say, well, that's just the Christian leaders, right? No, no. We're talking about unbelievers, people that might even hate Christianity, that might hate God, that may not believe in God. They're still serving God because they keep it from an anarchy. And we are to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13. That's tough. That's hard. But there is a kingdom above this kingdom on earth. Jesus says, this is not my kingdom. There's a greater kingdom, isn't there? But he is controlling this. So all of this is his kingdom. And, but Pharaoh thinks he owns it. And God is just going to show him a lesson. He is there to serve God's purpose. And he didn't know it. God, what he does in hardening his heart is this. He takes that merciful hand off of somebody. In this case, the Pharaoh. Takes his influence that ordinarily would keep keep a man from just going a a wall totally. That restraint that he has of sin going to its ultimate, he has his hand there, and what he does is he allows Pharaoh to pursue what he wanted to do unabashedly, with without. Any contest. Pharaoh is going to be able to do what he wants to do. There is a contest. God is doing his thing. Pharaoh doesn't see that. But he is not restrained. He, uh, he is allowing Pharaoh to have his hardened heart get harder. 
And that's basically uh, a meaning of the hardening of a man. God takes his hand off. Let's go to the first plague. We haven't gone to the plagues yet, right? Here we go. First one. Water to the blood. What's a plague? Well, it's defined as a blow or a strike. It means that God is dealing out punishment. That's what these plagues are. This is the first one of the ten plagues. And this is an attack on the gods of Egypt. And he comes right at them almost in a direct way. He gives warning here to um, Pharaoh in these directions that he gives. 14 through 18, he says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out into the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord, God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to warn him. And God doesn't have to do that, but He does. He warns him. He's already done the precursor here to the plagues, and now we go right into what a plague is going to happen. God warns this time before He wounds. He's telling him, here here it is. It's interesting, he's going to use the Nile River. And the Nile River is, um, one thing for sure, is where the boys of Israel, the firstborn boys at one time, were thrown into the Nile. You remember that? Probably other water areas. So he hits right at at that, and uh, right at the outset of where slavery happened, that's what happened there. Aaron is then going to smite the Nile and all the water in the land there. Nile River, it's really significant. And to this day, we know about the Nile River. It's not by accident that God just strikes this Nile River. The river made abundant life possible because just along the Nile River, for so many acres out, it would be blooming. And the trees would be... Lavishing, Everything would be really nice and green and, and colorful even. But most of the area beyond the river after that is a desert. Doesn't You don't have to go very long at all. And there it is. So that's why it's considered to be so precious to the Egyptians. It was considered to be a goddess to the Egyptians. Now imagine that. This is considered to be life to them. It's a goddess. And they worship this Nile River. This is a, a great source of water for them. How would they live without it? She was the giver of life. But, no. The I Am is the giver of life. The I Am is the self-existent one. The I Am is the one who gives life. It comes from Him. Everything is from Him. So whatever is worshipped in place of the true God cannot give life. 
a little practical lesson with that. If you're pursuing anything that misplaces who God is and it takes the place of Him and you're having satisfaction with that and it doesn't give glory to God, then you have an idol. And God loves to slay those idols. We should desire for Him to slay those idols. Because He does have the power and He will do that if you are His. Um, But Yahweh actually owned this Nile. He's the one that gave it the life that it is, right? Boy, how untrue it was. They thought it was that Nile River that was giving them such blessings. That's what the Pharaoh thought. So God says, I'm going to attack the Nile River. Now, there was a a god by the name of Hathi that was a god that indicated the powers of infertility, or I mean not infertility, but fertility and nourishment. Okay? Fertility and nourishment. And that's the god that God is going to be. Now, if you strike the Nile, you're going to hit right at the heart of their diet. First of all, you get to the water. Secondly, an important part of their life was eating. And they ate a lot of fish out of the Nile River. And that's why he mentions here that they all die and they stink. Stink up the river. Now the source of water is gone. The fish you feed the family with is gone. And this is causing stress all over the land. All the people are being involved with this. Now you're thinking, seven days without water, how'd they ever survive? Well, it was very meager at best because we do see that they go out, start trying to dig close to around the river, trying to come up with some fresh water. It was difficult. Now we'll move on to um, 19. Uh, it shows where it, it went to all the other water sources. The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So not only did he um, strike this uh, and, and the fish, but you know it, it turns into blood. They, they cannot drink it. Um, it it's a terrible thing uh, to them. And it's interesting that they're able to duplicate this like they did on that uh, preview before. That's amazing. I'm getting a little bit amazed by them taking their magic work and doing something like this, turning water into blood. They were not able to deliver Egypt from it. Wouldn't that be the thing you would think they would want to do? Try to take that blood and turn it right back to water. But no, they go around turning more water into blood. (laughs) Talk about stubborn. The bloody Nile. And there they are kind of adding to it. This, this really should have made Pharaoh faint twice here. 
shouldn't have, I mean, something should have happened. But their counterfeiting confirms to him that God, this God that says He's Yahweh, is not the only God. We, we have God. Look at verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Just like in verse 13. Past tense. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. They uh, sought for relief. You would think that they would be begging Pharaoh and Pharaoh would be saying, okay, listen, um, you're God. I admit it. I'm thirsty. Okay, um, just give us back our water. Just take your people. Just get out of here. Wouldn't you think... That's what he would do now. now. This is the first plague. You know, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? But no, he doesn't do that. The Lord's words meant nothing to him. He just shrugged off the whole incident. Seven days, there they are, that bloody water. What had been a blessing in Egypt, that river of life, is now a curse to them, as they clearly see it. This is God's judgment, is it not? Are we seeing the wrath of God there? Not in its fullest, but we're seeing it unleashed. They tried to get the water around the river. There's very little pure water. The fish in the Nile died. and Such a stench in all of the land. Can you imagine? Have you smelled just one dead fish? Have you smelled a bunch of them? How about all over the land or from out of the, the water? This lasted a whole week. Now that's the first plague. Let's, let's go to chapter 8 and we're through chapter 7. Are you amazed? We have a miracle going on right here. We move into 8, going to the second plague. This is the frogs. And we'll first read how uh, the threat happens. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, look at this, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the household of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls, And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and all your servants. Now it gets gets real personal. Where you have frogs in your bathroom, in your kitchen, in in your oven, the bowls that you mix your dough with, and my, it just goes on and on. Pharaoh is warned here, though. He is told what's going to happen before it happens. This is the second sign. There's a warning here. Frogs, what's the importance about them? Well, they were seen as sacred to Egypt. Frogs are sacred. You know, in India, Hinduism, they have sacred cows. Well, these guys in Egypt are just as bad with their sacred frogs. Uh, They wore amulets. Have you ever seen any amulets in the shape of a frog for the Egyptians? Have you ever seen that in some of the movies, cartoons or whatever? Well, that was the importance of a frog. They never killed them. 
like those sacred cows in India. Furthermore, the goddess, which is by the name of Het, was represented by the frog. So they have a god for the frogs, right? It's a symbol of resurrection and fertility. Frogs are. God was going to show that frogs don't know the secrets of life. Look what he does. If the Egyptians wanted frogs, frogs I'll give them. That's how they see as a secret to life. There's going to be wall-to-wall croakers <laughs> everywhere. Can you imagine the noise? I can't do a frog noise. I'm going to try, but anyway. Frogs in the bread. Frogs in the bed. Frogs in the clothes. Frogs in the kitchen. Frogs in the cabinets. Frogs in the cupboards. Everywhere you go, there are frogs that are on you, in your clothes. You can't imagine this. It's bad enough to have one little insect on you. You know, some lady gets a little mosquito, you know. What happens, right? And we're talking big frogs, and they're crawling on you. And they're everywhere you go, and in your beds. I mean, everywhere you can imagine. Every step, can you imagine, that you'd be take, taking would be crunching over frogs. And there they squirt out from underneath and take off. Oh, what a plague! I mean, this is real. This is not just some made-up story. It's just a Bible story. That couldn't have happened. God did this. I mean, this is not something very comfortable at all. You say, well, He can't do that to people. Satan did that. Oh, He did? No, God did that. God caused that. He's trying to get the attention of these people who have their own idolatry worship. Now, here's how it's inflicted in verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Just stretch it out and then let them come on up. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. The frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Let's just add to the problem. Let's show them our power. Let's make it worse. <laughs> Man, if you guys are that good, won't you get rid of them? Huh? If you have that much power, frogs are ruling the country. They're a threat to the sanitary conditions. How could you go on living if this continued on? You couldn't. How do you prepare food? There's no. You could have frog legs all you wanted, but then the other frogs are going to be landing on it. How are you going to be able to eat it? And when they died, then their rotting bodies not only had an odor, but they, they posed all sorts of health consequences. All these are spread out everywhere. How do you get rid of the piles and piles of these stinking frogs? Have you ever thought of that? But we move on. We see that verse 7 and they copy the miracle. They once again did this to show that Moses and Aaron aren't special after all. Hey, we have the powers. And I'm sure they're thinking, that's probably it. I'm sure they don't have any more and let's hope they don't because I'm not so sure if we have any more. I don't know what they're thinking. The problem is that they, they didn't make the matter better. They made it worse. So there we go. Well, we see the Pharaoh begging now in verse 8. He's finally begging. He saw the preview, no big deal to him. He saw the first plague, okay, got past that. Now the second plague. 
Then Pharaoh called for Moses. Hey, hey, um, can you, you come here? Come here, Moses and Aaron. Entreat the Lord, uh, Yahweh, the name of your God. Uh, you go and ask him. He is now he's recognizing that this must be from their God. Uh, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, yeah. He even admitted that God was the one who did this. I think that's something. But And he offers this deal. Hey, you can go on that worship trip after all. That deal you guys were talking about. But it's only a strategy to end the plague. That's all he wants. He's going to say that, but then he would like to eventually for them to come back. Go out and do your worship thing. He, he's saying that. But, again, a hardening of a heart is going to happen. Um Verses 9 through 14. Look at the intercession that Moses has. Here's what Pharaoh says. He says, okay, call for your God to call off the dogs. Uh, call off the frogs. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, okay, verse 10, tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There's no one like God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Back to the river. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So there he's praying. And this is intercession for the Pharaoh. I think that's quite something. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Even after the frogs are no longer living, they've got to do something with them. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, as soon as that was over... He hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And there we go in that outline again. There's the hardening of the heart after it's all said and done. You've heard of uh, people that cry out to God when they are at His mercy. They've never believed God before or they just wanted to do the things that they wanted to do. And then something drastic happens in their life and what do they do? They cry out to God and then whenever all the pressure's off, months later, weeks later, maybe a year later, then what do they do? They go back to what they were doing before. And Then there used to be a Burt Reynolds movie. I can't even remember what the name of it is anymore. I don't even care. But you know, as he was swimming, he thought he was going to drown. And as he got closer to the land, his prayer didn't wasn't quite so urgent and as he got up on the land he really didn't have a prayer to God anymore didn't need it because he was there on the beach you know I'll, I'll do anything God right until he finally gives relief uh, this is what Pharaoh's doing here Moses intercedes God listens here and the frogs die pretty well where they were Pharaoh has a hardened heart now this time we see this phrase he hardened his heart. Now we have seen where God says, I will harden him. And then we see where Pharaoh's heart grew hard. 
Now we see where Pharaoh hardens his heart. Once you take off that leash in a sense and let him go, he's going to go back and do what is natural unless he's converted. So this was a hardening to God's mercy. Was God merciful in taking away those frogs? Yes. Pharaoh is not convinced that he is no match. God here desires to keep him pinned up against the ropes here in this match. God is not going to let Pharaoh quit so easily. There are more plagues to go here. This hardening just kind of continues all throughout the plagues. And God had said this would happen. We looked at it earlier, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Now, there was evidence that this was the hand of God. And he still refused to accept his word and submit to it. He resisted, just like he did all the way back in chapter 5, verse 2. Moses and Aaron said, let my people go. They haven't done any miracles at that time. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Who is he? Had the audacity to say that. Well, he's learning, isn't he? So God hardens him. Now He hardens Himself. The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Pharaoh sinned against a flood of light. And God used this to accomplish His purpose. Is that hard to understand? But He did it. Let's go to the third plane. And this is from 16 through 19. This is the plague that deals with the gnats or the mosquitoes or it could be lice. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Here we go. Third play. Now, we've gone through about 30% of them now. Still have 70% to go. This plague was unannounced. Do you remember the other two plagues? God told Moses to go uh, tell Aaron as they would tell Pharaoh what God was going to do. This time, no announcement, it just happens. On the other sets of plagues, on the sixth one, this is the third, you have four and five, he warns, and on the sixth, I think there's no warning, and then seventh and eighth, he warns, and then on the ninth, he doesn't warn. I don't know, there's a pattern there. But anyway... What we can say is God has the freedom to warn people and He has the freedom to not warn them. Usually, He warns. And He warns. And He keeps knocking on the door. 
And He will send a message and continue and people continue to not listen to Him. I think that's something to take heed to, you know, when when we know that God is speaking, we need to pay attention. He can do a surprise attack anytime he wants, can't he? God gave life to dust. Can you imagine that? Stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land so it becomes lice. There wasn't enough lice out there to do what he's going to do. He just makes the lice or the mosquitoes or the gnats. It's been interpreted different ways. But he makes the dust turn into that. Now, have you all seen dust storms? And that's just grains of like sand and dirt. You know, it just you can imagine the billions and billions and billions of particles. Well, all of these now are gnats or something that bites and stings. It's an insect that penetrates the nose and the ears. You know, the, the gates of your... If you have your mouth open, uh, they'll go there too. Any time that they get... Just to irritate you. <laughs> to, to bite and sting you. This is like a cloud of mosquitoes. That's like never-ending. I saw back a few weeks ago a cloud. I don't know what it was. They looked like they were bigger than mosquitoes. They almost looked like they were hummingbirds, but not quite that big. I don't know what they were. I looked up and said, what is going on? It was looking like a huge cloud. Is it insects? What? And I looked back and I go, whoa, this thing stretched out a good couple of hundred yards, it looked like. And then they went over and then they just kept going. And I was really glad they just kept going and they went out of sight. I don't know what they were. They were heading south, which was Betty Joe's direction. They probably, I don't know, did, did you have any things eaten up out there in your area? No? <laughs> All those friendly birds? <laughs> These things were moving. I'm glad they kept going. Just keep heading and don't ever come back or land. But it kind of remind me of this, but that was nothing compared to this. I mean, this just covers the land. And uh, it, it's, just like, it's just like dust. They're nagging, they're pesky, their lice are, are gnats, and, and this is a judgment against the god Set, S-E-T, or there's another god, Hathor, and he's considered to be the god of the desert. And so, the god of the desert, yeah, why not? That's the biggest part of their land, isn't it? The desert. And I think this had to be almost like a living nightmare. How do you, you know, you've gone through the frogs, that's bad enough, and now you have these things. I don't know which is worse. I, I think this, this could be worse. Uh, I think it is because the magicians can't come up with this one. They try something, hoping something will come up. Wait, we've never done Have you done this before? How do we, well, get, your, get a rod out, try something, you know. And they, they couldn't do it. Um, God's putting on this, this judgment, they can't copy. This is beyond their magic and they say this is the finger of God. I'm not so sure that they're absolutely giving a confession of faith here as saying this is beyond us. This is more supernatural than anything that we can do. Uh, This is about the power and authority of God. They don't mention Yahweh here like Pharaoh is actually mentioned um, whenever he uh, mentioned Lord or the capital letters in that word Yahweh. Uh, I think the magicians are saying this is too big for us. 
We have no tricks in the bag for this one. Uh, or our gods are not giving us power and authority on this one. Nothing's happening. They were hoping something would happen. So the gnats come out of the dust of the earth and that is definitely not the Egyptian source of life. Now they worship the Nile River and you know the water and of course the frogs was a big deal to them. So that was kind of natural to them. That was kind of dealing with, you know, something that they're familiar with. But the dust of the earth, that's that's not a source of life to them. This is out of their own. They're totally baffled. What do we do? I think this is a bigger display of God's power than he's shown before. Now God should really get the glory. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Verse 19. He's still unmoved. What would it take? What would it take? Death of his firstborn or something like that? Totally unmoved by it. God's part in this is to bring to surface what is already in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's getting worse. It's already there. Have you ever seen bitter people? Pharaoh was bitter. Have you ever known a bitter person? And as they get older and older, they get bitter and bitter. Is there such a word as bitter? More bitter? That happens a lot. And it's sad. And even Christians... I think this can be a lesson to us. We can become bitter over things. Stew over it. Build it up. Steam starts rising out of us. We just get more mad. And we become more wicked in our thoughts. And we start thinking about doing things to people. Can that happen to Christians? Boy, I'll tell you. The bitterness can set in. So this hardness of heart, I'm taking it there and I'm hitting it right at us. Because we too can become bitter against things, against God, against people, and we have no right to do that. How ridiculous it is for Pharaoh to do that, and we as Christians who have all the power and all the truth, and yet we harden our heart, and we know good and well we're doing it. We might act like we don't know it, but we are. And we know that. Let God convict you there, because that's a natural element, that's a fleshly thing that fights against us. We love to hold things in us there. Those who, uh, I guess what you can say here, Pharaoh is growing more and more obstinate. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? Obstinate. Mr. Obstinate. And that's what's happening. It's now, to us as we read this and look back on it, we say, huh, I can see what's happening. I can see what God is doing. God is doing it. Pharaoh's doing it. It's happening there. A lot of it's a natural process. Definitely a supernatural work involved though. Those that are not made better by God's Word and providences, if they're not made better by His Word, what happens? They are commonly made worse. Is that possible? The Word of God can make people bitter and angry against it. Or it can soften us and make us better. And uh, we see what it does as far as Moses and Aaron are concerned. Then we see the other side we see where mercy is given to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. God is judging this hardness that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians had. God is certainly winning this battle. 
Pharaoh won't admit it. It's really not a match at all, is it? As this battle continues on, God uses this people and they're going to know that He's God. The only God, the only true God is winning every battle very easily. The ten plagues. And on throughout in our own lives, guess who's really winning? God is. He's bending us. He's twisting us. Shaping us into the very mold where He wants us to. Now we can be like Pharaoh and stand back for a while and try to be obstinate against God. But when you do that, what happens? He has to put the rod on you there. The discipline happens, like in Hebrews 12. That chastisement is for our good though. But So we don't want to be obstinate. God is winning battles. And He's going to win every battle all the way up to the end. He's controlling this. He wins easily, doesn't He? Why would you fight against Him? How ridiculous it is to Pharaoh to fight against this Almighty God. And we sit back here and go, how can you do that? But you know what? That's what unbelievers do all the way to the end unless the mercy of God comes in. That's why we should be humbled by this and say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace, because I do not deserve it. I deserve to be in the same camp as the Egyptians. And somehow, just like what you did with the Israelites, you favored them, you favored me. Uh, An incredible God. He is sovereign in every way. We owe Him allegiance. And that's what we do when we worship Him. We give Him our allegiance. Let's go. Have a word with the Lord.